and welcome to the TPM Podcast with your host, Mari Gerard. Today, we have a very interesting guest with us. He's the author of the popular blog, Engineer Seeking Fire. He has over 15 years of experience working in various tech organizations in a variety of roles, from being a software engineer, a program manager, a product manager, and a TPM. He has been a TPM at Microsoft, at Amazon, and now he's a TPM at Google. In this podcast, we will cover the essence, the core essence of the blog, which is Engineer Seeking Fire and what fire means and why the author started the blog. We'll maybe go into a little bit of impact we've had of COVID. And then we'll dive really deep into the TPM role at Google and how the author of the blog compares the TPM role at Amazon versus Microsoft versus Google. And maybe we'll go a little bit into uh, some discussion about how to prep for interviews at these various organizations. So one thing to note here is the author of the blog, Engineer Seeking Fire, is anonymous. So I'm not going to name who he is. Throughout this podcast, I might refer to him as Mr. ESF, Engineer Seeking Fire. So why don't you tell us how this whole journey began, how you started this blog and what your blog is all about? Hi, Mario. So first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. I've been listening to it for quite some time now. I've learned a lot. So really happy for all your content and really happy that you're doing this. So thank you so much for organizing the podcast and for inviting me. A uh, few things about my story. So I love the tech space. So I studied the computer engineering and I, I've been always passionate about software engineering and writing code. And after graduation, I got a great job at the large high-tech company. I was very proud, accomplished. I loved my job as a software engineer. At the same time, though, as I was going through my finances, um, it felt as if I was getting by paycheck by paycheck. So having a great salary doesn't mean that you know, you're living a very fancy life, so especially as a, as a new grad. So it felt like one paycheck was paying for my rent, the other bi-weekly paycheck was paying for my expenses, and then that's it. Pretty much there wasn't Story that. of our life, huh? <laughs> yes. And then at some point, I was, I was thinking about it. Somebody pointed me to the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm sure you've uh, read it yeah, probably yeah. or learned about it, heard it. And that changed my mindset. I thought that I learned that having a great income is not the solution for everything. What I understood is that my goal should be to become financially independent. So pretty much finding ways for my money to work for me. So, you know, I can spend X amount of hours every day working and make some money there, but I need to kind of multiply my efforts by having the money work for me. The goal would be to have options. So it's not that, okay, if I have much money, I'll just retire and be on a, and have, go to Hawaii and just spend all my time in the beach. It's just to have options. You know, I might want to start my own thing or I might want to work in different roles. You know, the goal for being financially independent is to have many options. So the book focused specifically on getting passive income through real estate investing. And it said that you can become financially independent when your expenses are less or equal to your passive income, right? So the idea is that if you have passive income from real estate investing, and that's more than your expenses, then you don't need to work. That's the general idea. However, even though the idea was great, it turned out that I was not into real estate investing. I didn't want to buy properties and sell properties and manage them. So I started looking at other ways about how I could increase my money. So I looked at the stock market investing. I took classes. I read about it quite a bit. But then the problem was that every time I bought a stock, 
it felt as if the stock fell. So I would buy, say, Microsoft one day and then Microsoft would just fall in a few days. Or I would buy Google or any other company and then it would just fall. So I don't know, it felt like that. Obviously, 2008 hit at some point, so maybe that was part of it. But it was not stock market investing just like that. It felt as if I didn't have a strategy there. So I thought, okay, you know, I need to get some more holistic understanding about the finances. So I got an MBA. You know, I'll just leave tech, go get an MBA, learn more about how to think in the financial, how to get a financial education. So I learned a lot about theoretical stuff, like the efficient market hypothesis, modern portfolio theory, all sorts of stuff. And the problem there is, again, you learn all the theory, but you don't know what to do in your day-to-day life. So how do you transfer all this knowledge into something more actionable? So after the MBA, I started reading blogs, articles. I was diving deeper into the financial articles. At the same time, I was also switching companies. So I went from Microsoft, I went to Amazon, I went to Google. Every company has lots of internal resources for financial stuff. So they have some companies have FAQs, there might be internal websites, there might be mailing lists, lots of people who know how to maximize their money pretty much, how to optimize their investments. So I learned a lot from all these people. And they also learned how to maximize the benefits for each company. Right? So every company had different benefits. So I learned That's a lot about cool. those companies. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, that different companies have different types of benefits, right? And understanding that's pretty important too. Yeah, that's an interesting point. That helped a lot as I was going forward. And then what changed things a lot was one day I learned about the 4% rule. And this 4% rule pretty much says that when your annual expenses are 4% of your liquid net worth, then you are financially independent. So just to clarify what this means. So let's say I have a portfolio for stocks and cash and bonds, which is $1 million. If my expenses are 4% of that, let's say annual expenses are 4%. So if they are $40,000 or less, then I don't need to work anymore. Pretty much. That's the whole idea. And I can withdraw 4% every year. It's inflation adjusted. So the first time it will be 40,000. Then the next year it will be 40,000 plus, let's say, 3%, which is inflation. So there is almost a 100% chance that I will not run out of money for 30 years. And in most cases, I'll multiply my portfolio. So if I follow that, then after 30 years, I might have $2 million or $3 million or end up with a multiple of my initial portfolio. So that is what pretty much changed me. That, so now I knew my target. I knew that, okay, I have expenses of X amount of dollars. I need to have 25X. Now I have a target. I know how much money I need to gain. I had learned a lot about index funds, about investing. So I had everything else. And that is what made it click. So that's how I started um, looking more into the FIRE movement. And that pretty much was the changing, the changing moment. And at that point, when I had a holistic picture, I was also seeing that whenever I speak with friends about finances, they might not know some of the things that I, I took for granted. For example, one of the things that always shocked me is um, some simple things. For example, the 401k. Ask people, okay, what is the maximum amount that you contribute to for your 401k? And the usual answer that I get is always, okay, I maximize my 401k. And then my follow-up question is always, okay, what does maximizing your 401k mean? And then some people say, okay, you know, let's say my company... If I put 6% of my income into the 401k, my company gives you another 3%, so I put that. And I would say, no, that's not maximizing your 401k. And then some others might say, oh, you know, my 401k, IRS says $19,500, that's the maximum that I can put in my 401k, so I do that. And I would say, no, that's only for pre-tax 401k, so that's not it. 
And then some other people might say, oh, you know, I know the, the mega backdoor Roth, so I can put $59,000. So some of it is pre-tax, some of it is post-tax. So every year I can put $59,000. And um, you might be surprised, I'm not sure if you know about Mario, but you might be surprised that that's actually not the maximum that you can put in your 401k. You can put even more than that. Oh, wow. So, and people don't know, I did not know it until I switched some companies. So pretty much what the IRS says in this case is that you can put $59,000 per employer. So if you switch employers, let's say you go from Microsoft to Amazon, Amazon to Google, you switch employers, then you can put another $59,000 wow. per year. Uh, per year. Uh, wow. So there are two limits. One is $19,500 in pre-tax 401k, and then uh, that's per individual, so per person, but then there is a $59,000 per employer. So if you change, you can put $116,000 in your 401k. So stuff like that. So it's, I was learning these things and then pretty much I started the blog in order to share this knowledge and, and help others in technology as well. Interesting how you combine. I see a lot of your posts which are very uh, financial centric and then you have, a, you have another set of posts which are like you bring the engineer, your technology background and how that kind of combines with this. So that's very interesting in your blog how you combine both the fire movement and the fact that you are an engineer and how you bring both of that out. And the way that I see it is that my ultimate goal is to help people become financially independent. And then there are two ways, there are multiple things that you need to do in order to do that. One is to increase your income. So increasing your income might mean I want to get to the next best job, right? I want to maximize my salary. So that's one way to maximize your income. So that's why all the career advice goes into the picture. That's why I'm telling people, helping people find out, should they be Swiss, should they be TPMs, PMs, how, to, how can they transition, what are the best paying company. So that's one area where I'm trying to help people. The other one is, again, in order to become financially independent, you need to reduce your expenses. So I have lots of posts about how can you do that? How other people are doing this? How, what are my expenses? How am I minimizing my expenses? And then another area is, again, about investments. So how do you, if you save lots of money, how do you maximize your investments so that you can become financially independent earlier? And how can you reach this 4% uh, rule, as we said earlier, faster? When I started getting interested in the FIRE movement, what fascinated me was the amount of time we spend working to earn money versus the amount of time you're spending to manage the money we have, right? I feel that the amount of time, generally how much time people spend managing money is so, so small compared to the amount of time we put into earning that money. And if you spend more time managing money, generally, you're going to get a much better outcome in all together, right? That's very true because let's say somebody might be a software engineer, so they might know a lot of things about software engineering. They might be a great software engineer, might have a great salary. So they spend all this time at work working on software engineering. Maybe they learn, they like to spend their free time working on their own projects, or maybe they want to learn from blogs or read books, magazines, stuff like that. So they spend all this amount of time in, in software engineering and in the computer world. However, the money that they are making could be multiplied if they spend a little bit more time in the investing side. So and not a lot of time. It's a not a lot of time they need to it spend. It doesn't have to be a lot of time, yes. Yeah. It is a fractionally larger amount of time than they're already spending. You don't need to spend like 20 hours managing your money, trading stock. You just need to spend probably four or five hours a month. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's Correct. Even, even that much, if you can spend four to five hours a month being more aware and managing your assets and bringing down your expenses, 
the rate of what you're going to get in return is so many times more than actually putting those four hours into doing some work. Correct. As soon as you have some investing strategy, so my, my investing strategy is about index funds and ETFs. So if you figure out that, okay, I want to invest, let's say, in a total stock market index fund like BTSAX or in the S&P 500 index fund, you put all your money there, just let it yeah. increase. Don't need to spend all this time investing in stocks and looking yeah. at different trends and stuff like that. So you just put all the money there, just in case. Yeah. You just need to set it up initially, spend some time yeah. initially to set it up, and then you're good. It's surprising how my attitude towards finance was that, oh, it's too complex, so complex that I do not want to spend my time understanding it. And the more I read it, the more I learned, I felt that, oh, it's actually very simple. You just need to be disciplined about it, right? It's not actually very complex. If you just use ETFs and index funds, there's a likelihood that you'll even beat the market, right? And you'll get a very reasonable, predictable amount of return instead of doing something right. fancy. So yeah, definitely uh, folks who are listening, do check out the blog. I'm going to put a link to the blog. The blog's URL is engineerseekingfire.com. And I'd definitely like you to go and spend some time there because there's a tremendous amount of valuable information on the blog. So let's move on to the second half of the podcast, where we're going to talk about more of the TPM world. But I definitely want to get the author's perspective of what have you seen that are the impacts of COVID so far? So it's been like March to March, almost a year now. How have you seen like COVID change the work environment as a TPM? So it's, it seems quite a bit. And I see many differences between people and their performance. If I compare the pre-COVID, pre-COVID versus post-COVID, for example, one of the differences is people with young kids versus don't have young children. For example, if you don't have young children, then maybe it's better for you because you stay at home, so you don't have to go to work, spend one hour, let's say, driving yeah. to work, another one hour driving back from work. So you save some time. You're also eating at home, so it's much easier to not spend time or money to just get outside, go to the cafeteria, come back. So you might gain more time. If you don't have young children, then people can just work for many, many hours consecutively. And then time flies. You might not even, sometimes I see people who are not even eating lunch. They just start at 9 a.m., don't eat lunch, go to 9 p.m. And they're super productive. And they love that. And it's a way for them to just produce an insane amount of work. And then at the same time, I see other people, especially with young children, where life is way more complicated now because you might have children at home. It might be way more difficult to arrange your time if you are parents because now as a parent let's say people who have children who are going into elementary school and now they are they participate from school from home and they stay at home most of the day you have to be with them you have to spend yeah. more time with the children it's just not so easy to be as productive anymore because your your work and your time is split in half you have yeah. during the work hours sometime you spend with your children sometime you can you have to be in meetings and then you might be working late at night so, and your schedule is all over the place. So, so I see very different performance perspectives from these types of two groups. So that's one huge change that I see there. For me, another big difference is that pre-COVID, if I had the question, I would just walk to somebody's desk, I would chat, figure it out, and then brainstorm. Things would get solved way faster. Now it's not so easy because now I need to set up a meeting. So it's like, okay, let's can I am somebody and then he might be in a different call or he might be busy or I set up a meeting for 30 minutes and that meeting might be tomorrow because the other person might be busy. So 
even small things need meetings and then the meeting might drag and it might take a lot of yeah. time to figure out. So the cheat chat and all the solutions that are being designed in whiteboards during in the corridor, you know, you just totally lose that. Yeah. And then another thing is that generally there is much less face-to-face time. So before it was much easier to build relationships. So we would go to coffee chats, learn about them and build relationships. Now it's much more difficult to build those, especially if you're, let's say, changing teams or if you're joining a new company, it's not so easy to bond with a team. Yeah. That's really important points. For me personally, I think the, the thing that affects me the most is that the fact that if I count the number of new relationships that I've built over the last one year, it's fairly less. And if you look the previous year, how many new relationships I'd built was generally at least like 10 to 15, 20 people, 30 people are very close. I take them out for coffee, we go for walks, all those things. I think all of those, the number of new relationships, if I count, which I've Mm -hmm. built in the last one year has definitely, definitely gone down. Close relationships with people, right? That's definitely taken a nosedive with um, not having to meet in person and doing everything over Zoom. And when you do things over Zoom, right? I feel that it's generally more business-like. Having a very casual, personal conversation does not generally happen on Zoom. And that's because it's hard to switch on and off between meetings. Yes. Right? If you're a TPM, you're on Zoom probably like six hours a day. So it's very hard to context switch and switch your type, you know, your personality between Zoom calls. So yeah, that's the hardest thing. How do you see uh, the work environment changing like as we get our vaccines and as we maybe start going back to work, what do you think is going to happen? So I hope that it will get back to normal after we get the vaccine. However, I'm not sure about the timelines. I think there will be a transitional period, but even if we start getting vaccinated, people will just be afraid of going back to work. People might not like to get the vaccine. Some people are suspicious about the vaccine. So I think there will be a lot of transition period until we return back to, let's say, normal normal life. So I think in this transitional period, there are a few things that will be key as a TPM. For example, one is business communication. So if you don't show up online, then people have no idea as a TPM what you're doing, right? It's pretty much you need to show up, you need to show your work, you need to talk to people. And if you don't, then people might even not even know that you're there. And uh, you need to be available as well. You need right? to be available, yes. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think being available, so if you're working in different time zones or, or across time zones, then somehow you have to at least try to be available for the other party. And with, as you said, right, if you have kids and you're trying to split your day with your spouse, then it even becomes even more tricky. So yeah, that's totally true. And especially if you, for example, and this is a double-edged sword. So if you just want to coast by and, and people... There are some people who want to do that. So if you want to cost by, then being invisible might help from that perspective. <laughs> but if you want to show, you know, be productive, show your value, make an impact, then obviously this doesn't help. So you definitely want to be in touch with the developers and have much more communication there via IEMs, via meetings, via emails. You, you need to, as a TPM, in this transitional period, you need to show that you're there and you need to show your value. And then very related with this, as a TPM, you need to have personal contact. I think it's very difficult to, as we said before, to keep, to maintain personal contacts, but it's very important to do this. So 
until we get back to the office. It's very important to remember that, okay, in order to build a relationship with somebody, I need to ask him about personal things. I need to, instead of just focusing and keeping all the meetings on the business level, ask how their life is doing. Schedule one meetings with people just yeah. to chat, just to have a virtual coffee chat as a meeting instead of asking them all the time about, okay, what's the status or are we on track? I do that with a few people and it's always helpful to have a casual coffee chat and just avoid yes, from all the work topics there. Try not to talk about work, but talk about anything but work. Anything but work, yes. That's the goal. Another yeah. thing is pretty much as a TPM, you need to make sure that everybody is connected. So, you know, you're all, all the time in meetings. But let's say it's a meeting with 10 people. There might be two, three people speaking and they catch most of the time. If everybody was sitting on around the table, then it might be easier for people to speak up. Right now, what I see is that in the larger meetings, especially, there might be a few people who talk a lot, but then other people are hiding. So even though they might have something important to say, so how do you help people be a little bit more proactive? How do you help them participate in the discussion? Can you spot in a meeting who is struggling, offer your help? Uh, can you encourage people to participate more? So I think as a TPM, this is really important stuff. And I think what you're saying is doing it virtually is a little more trickier. Like we used to always used to do that, right? Always yes, used to make people speak up. But I think doing it virtually, you got to be more aware of who's speaking and who's not speaking, who's actually there, like all of those things. Doing it virtually, I think, is a little more difficult. It's tricky. You have to amplify your skill set here and go to the next level, in, especially in communication and in your emotional awareness and understand more about what's happening within the team. So I, I think that it'll take a long time until we go back into pre-COVID situations where everybody's sitting in the same room without masks and we're all go- everybody's going for COVID chats. So until that time happens, then there is all these things that need to... As a TPM, you need to be aware of these things and amplify your skills like that. Yeah, and I think what's going to happen, like how I see the future is that once things settle down and a good large percentage of people get vaccines, then what you're going to see in the workforce is you're going to see most of the people come into work like two, three days a week or two days a week. Mm-hmm. And our teams picking, oh, my team's going to come in on Monday and Tuesday. Most of my team's going to try to make it, but we're not going to come in every single day of the working week. I think it's going to be a very blended work from home and come into work kind of environment because a lot of people have also started enjoying working from home from some perspective, at least they don't need to commute and they're saving so much time, right? And then also from a hiring perspective, if you look at it, a lot of companies now have started hiring all across the United States, right? right? Not just in Seattle or not just in California, right? They're completely open to a whole set of candidates who are not location specific anymore. So it's going to be kind of be interesting to see how the new work environment, even if that's one or two years from now, how that looks. I think it's going to be fairly different from what you and I are used to seeing in the last five, 10 years. And that's a great point about the remote hiring. That's a great point because, again, at this point before, the team might be only in one location, but right now it's very easy to hire somebody in a totally different location. And since everybody's just video conferencing, then it doesn't matter if everybody's in one place, if everybody's in different places. So at some point, who knows what will happen? Will everybody be forced to move? Will we just keep video conferencing like that? That's another interesting point. Yeah, and the hiring at other locations also has been extremely 
cost effective for organizations, right? So we've now started hiring in different cities across the United States where the salaries are not as high as uh, California or Washington. So it's a whole new, um, I don't know how this is going to all play out. So it's going kind of going to be interesting. It's not only from the perspective of the employer who is not hiring in California and let's say Washington, True. but it might also be from the employees. Employee. So yeah. Somebody might want to work, let's say, for a high-tech company, let's say Facebook, Google. They might not want to spend 10% of California tax and spend more money in, to have the same level of life by living in California, but they might be able to live, let's say, somewhere with a lower cost of living and enjoy their life there while they're still working for one of these high, high, yeah, high-tech absolutely. companies. Absolutely. Many people who live from California to go somewhere else. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. And I think, yeah, if you, especially if you have family, Right, and you can't leave a city. It it makes a lot of sense to work out of another city other than California or Washington State. Cool. That's the end of this episode, my friends. Stay tuned for the next episode where we go into talking about how the TPM role varies between Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. It's a really, really cool episode. And then also visit the website to get the link to the blog, the Engineer Seeking Fire blog, and to go through the notes from the podcast and the podcast transcript. See you on the other side. Thank you. Thank you.